0: Every now and then, I'm techno-cool. But then every now and then, I prove that I'm just an old man. 53, remember? And I send the wrong text to the wrong person. You ever done that before? You're communicating with five or six people, and then you throw something at someone, and you're like, oh, no. Uh, And you kind of say, sorry, that wasn't meant for you. That may be where John is for a moment. John is writing to his beloved little children. Now, he meant to trouble some people. I mean, he's been writing that there is this fellowship you can enjoy, this light that you can walk in, that there's eternal life that can be yours. You can have forgiveness of sins and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And that such people understand there is a law They appreciate God's law, they walk in God's law, they confess their sins, they keep God's commandments, they walk like Jesus walks, and if that's not you, then you're not those people. So he came out hard last week, didn't he? The son of thunder thundered that there's God's barn, and in it are both sheep and goats, that there's God's field, and in it are both wheat and tares, that there's God's church, and in it are both those who pretend and those who possess. He drew the line. He brought the heat. He troubled some friends that he meant to trouble by his text. This week at a Bible study that I was at, a friend of mine looked and was glad that week's sermon was over. He looked at me and basically said, yeah, that bothers me. And I wanted to reach across and grab the man and shake him and give him a hug, but he's bigger than I am and he may think weird things are going on when I do that at a Panera. And I wanted to say, that's not for you. You're not supposed to be bothered by that. There are some people who might should be bothered because they could care less about God's commandments. But I want to encourage you, and I think that's where John is. He's gone in hard. He's gone in deep. The son of thunder has thundered And now he wants to encourage. So there's some good news coming here. He wants to encourage. He wants you to know that you know. He wants to reassure you of your salvation. And so this is what he says. 1 John 2, verses 12 through 17. I'm writing to you, little children because your sins are forgiven for His namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. So do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not from the Father, it's from the world. The world's passing away along with its desires but whoever does the will of God he has eternal life he abides forever so he starts off with some words of encouragement and man as you studied this the commentaries were everywhere some think there are four groups mentioned there's the little children there's the children there's the fathers and there's the young men Some think that there's only three groups mentioned, the little children and the children are one group, the fathers are group two, and the young men are group three. Some think that there's only two groups mentioned, that everyone's in the little children group because that's how Paul's been writing to his little children, and he'll keep doing that. But then within the little children, there are both the olders and the youngers, the fathers and the children, and some just say, hey, there's only one group. He's just writing to Christians and he's using all kind of names and titles to make sure that no one thinks that they're missed or overlooked. I'm kind of going the direction of I think that he's writing here going, okay, there are some who in some areas of their life are like children in relationship to God. And some in some areas of their life, they're like young men in the fight, engaged in with God. And then there are some who are like fathers, who are settled and more mature. And wherever you are, all of these blessings apply to Christians. But they apply in different relationships at different times and in different ways. And so he's writing here to encourage, and he starts with the little children. I'm just going to lump those together. I'm writing you little children because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I write to you children because you know The Father. The what? You Christians, you get to be excited that 100% of your sins are forgiven if you're in Christ. That means if you're one of those who sees your sin or in chapter 1 confesses your sin, you are forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness. These are the big sins and the small sins, the known sins and the hidden sins, the ones that hurt you, the ones that hurt your family, all of them, the ones that you've already committed, the ones that you will commit, this is just really good news. For all who are in Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. It's already done. Why? Not because of a certain sin that you've avoided. Not because you have remorse and you cry your your eyes out over your sin. Not because you have confessed every single sin and have kept a really good list and haven't missed a one of them. Not because your affection for God is off the charts. Not because your actions that follow are good enough to merit such forgiveness. You are forgiven of all your sins, Christians, because of the name because of the name that's above every name, because of His name. His name is Savior, Jesus, and He is the one who is faithful and true. He's the one who makes covenants and keeps covenants, and He never lies. He puts His name on the line, and He is the one who saves. So this is really good reason to rejoice. As you're looking at the table today, you are incredibly Loved little children. You've been forgiven. And what else do you have? You know the Father. That means there is a God, and you know Him, but better than that, He is the Heavenly Father of some, and you and the Heavenly Father are in a relationship. Like little children, you get to say, Abba, Father, Dad. So there's those first two great encouragements to you. Christian. You come to the table. You come to the table not if you haven't sinned. You come to the table if you know you have sinned. And then you come to the table not if you're neglecting your sin, but if you're treating it by confessing it. This is the table for sinners because of His name. This is the table for anyone who says, I am a sinful child of God and He is my Father. He then writes and says, beloved fathers, I'm writing to you. And he says the same thing twice in verse 13 and 14. Because you know him who is from the beginning. Because you know him who is from the beginning. There comes a point in time when you mature. Your taste buds mature. There's nothing better than McDonald's french fries. Until you go to Hall's, Chava's. There's nothing better than cute little songs that you learn until you go to a symphony. And so you start with God, and you come to Him like a little child. You come to Him, and you say, I am just coming, and I'm just running into your arms, and He's your Father. And then as you mature, as you season... You get to know the Father and the Son and you get to know that He is the one who loved you from the beginning. And it kind of helps you settle. You hear of our older saints who talk about loving Jesus more and more. They used to sing songs like Jesus is the sweetest name I know as they are just learning to rest in their Christ more and more. Jesus increased in wisdom, stature, Favor with God and man. Your elder saints, you, you elderly saints, you've done that as well. The Bible talks about starting with milk, but then at some point you go to meat. I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying, you Christians, you get to enjoy maturity. You get to enjoy intimacy. So you put all these things together. Oh, man, you have covenantal promises from God. That he says, I'm putting my name on the line. He comes and he secures your salvation and He offers it freely to all who confess their sins. You get forgiveness. You get a relationship with the Father. You get a relationship with the Son and you get to grow in maturity and intimacy. And then He talks to the youngsters. He uses perfect tense. All this has already been done. And I think this is interesting. Because there should be, you know, you have your children, and then you have your youngsters, and then you have your adults, but he's messed up the order a little bit, hasn't he? You have your children who start the race, you have your grandparents of sort, your fathers, your elders of sort, who are finishing the race. But then there's the race, there's the battle there's the jihad, there's the holy war that you're in, but even while you're a young person, and when he uses that word for young person, you can look throughout the Bible and extra biblical sources, and this is someone ages 15 to about 30. This is when you're in the prime of life. This is when the passions are most hot and heavy. This is when your business executives will tell you to make your mark, to burn the extra hours, to go for it, to make the most of everything this world has to offer. He looks at them, those people that we look at which are maybe least mature, that's just not the case of those who are in Jesus Christ. So I speak to the high schoolers. High schoolers, raise your hand. Middle schoolers, add your hands to that. College kids, you don't have to. We'll keep going. But you people who are young, the world looks at you as like you're in some weird adolescent period of time when you're neither child nor human. I mean, adult. God looks at you as though you are strong. You have already overcome the evil one. Greater is He that lives in you than he that is in the world. You have the Spirit of Christ who has overcome the devil living within. You don't have to be subject to your flesh. You don't have to follow your peers. You can tell the world to take a hike because you have the Spirit of Almighty God living inside you. This is incredible news that you have strength that you can overcome the world, that you are more than a conqueror through Him who loved you. And so God looks at you like He looks at Joshua, and He says, be strong and courageous. Kathy didn't know when she prayed that I was going to mention Ephesians chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Paul looked at Timothy and said, come on, man up. Let no one look down on you because you're young. You set an example of the believer. This is not something that happens after you're a child, someday when you're an adult. This is characteristic of the young people of our generation. This is why we sit there and we invest everything we can with Shelley and Gordon and Tara and all of you who participate because we are raising strong men and women who are not going to be suckers on the college campus They're going to live differently because they have the Holy Spirit living within them. Christians enjoy the covenantal promises, forgiveness, the relationship with the Father, maturity, intimacy, and strength. They enjoy victory. We sing a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark that never fails. We sing that song, This is my Father's world, and it has that phrase, Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven will be one. He wins. And he's not going to lose. The gates of hell will not prevail. Your America may be in trouble. Your world may be in trouble. This church may be in trouble. But his church, it will stand. And you know how it will stand? Because children of God are birthed and people with lots of assets have nurtured and discipled, and the next generation will have its remnant. It will have those who stand, and it better be you. This is it. This is what Christ has for you. You are not subject to that stuff. You can say no, and we want to be there cheering you on. This is how much Christ wants to encourage you. This is what John wants to do as he encourages beloved youngsters. So now, out of that context, we have the encouragement, which then leads to the exhortation. How are we going to live? We love him. Why? Because he first loved you. This is an imperative that follows the indicative. In fancy language, this is what we do in response to what he has already done. So he loves us. You come to the table today because he loves you. And now you get ready to express your love for him. But John uses the word love more than anybody. Let me read this to you. The theme of love is addressed throughout the Bible, but nowhere more than in 1 John. In this little letter, the word love, is used 51 times. And all of those are positive, except this one. So you're going to hear over and over again, he loves you, love him back. He loves you, love him back. But today, he loves you. What are you doing loving that crap? Loving the world. This is a real temptation that John is writing about that mature believers, that youngster believers, and that child believers, childish believers, uh, toddlers, infants, whatever word we want to use here, that you can all have your love for God messed up with love for the world? This is real. It can happen. What does he mean by the world? He's not speaking of the universe He's not speaking of the globe and he's not speaking of people on the planet for we are to love our neighbors. He's not speaking of the blessings of God. You are to be able to enjoy the blessings of God. He's referring to the devilish, atheistic, naturalistic world system. One man said, it's the sinister sphere. It's that which is in the grip of the evil one. Those People who prefer the darkness to the light, they're part of that world order. The world doesn't want him. The world doesn't know him. The world rejects him, and the world hates him, and the world hates his church. It's the life of human society as organized under the power of Lucifer, under the dominion of Satan, the prince of this world, and his Antichrist, which John will say is coming, and will also say and is here now. It's that world that stands condemned, it is doomed, it is passing away. What is the world that you're not to love? What are the characteristics of that world? He gives us three. But notice, they are not three things out there. Now see, growing up as a fundamentalist, the world might have been dancing, smoking, Drinking, you have to say IN if you're in South Carolina, you can't say ING. I mean, playing cards, all those different things. Back in the day, women wearing pants, men with hair down to their shoulders. And it was all that stuff that we had to stay away from. That's not where John goes. What is this world that you're supposed to stay away from? Being a Christian doesn't mean that you have to have bad taste. It doesn't mean that you can't eat good food. It doesn't mean that you can't have uh, wine at your communion table. It doesn't mean that you can't go to movies. It doesn't mean that you can't have wealth. It doesn't mean that you can't go to plays. What does it mean? Look what it says. The world that you're staying away from is not so much out there as it's in here. Here we go. It's that craving. That's the first, the desires of the flesh. Your body has connected with it certain passions that say, "Uh, I'd like to have sexual relations with someone other than my spouse. I would like to engage in devouring more food gluttony than I should. I would like to be lazy and not have a work ethic, either at my place of employment or my place of education. I'd like to take the easy way. James 1 says, this is the desire within that when it conceives gives birth to death. You have some kind of desire from within that is worldly. That's not supposed to characterize you. William Barclay says, it's a life dominated by the senses, extravagant in gratification. It's the exact opposite of the Holy Spirit gift of self-control. If I want it, I got to have it. Cookies. (laughs) This is maybe what you see Esau doing when Esau has these incredible gifts from his God, and he says, forget that. My stomach is grumbling. It's what happens when a man who has a wife says, I'm going to allow my desires to send me in another direction. It's what happens to all of us. when We're led astray, and we don't, bring into subjection those natural desires that are not bad, but we want to use them in a wrong way. That's the desires of the flesh. Secondly, it's temptations from without. Do you remember how Eve was tempted through the eye gate? That fruit looked good for the eating. How Achan was tempted through the eye gate. Ooh, I see gold, I see silver, I hear God's voice. Forget that, there's a Babylonian garment. Remember how Satan tried to get to Jesus, taking him around and showing him through the eye gate. Hey, don't you want that? Don't you want this? You can have it all. It's what happens to us when we're driving down the highway. And we see the billboards that are advertising something that just hit us. And all of a sudden, we weren't thinking about that, but now we've got to have it. It's on the television all day long. When I walk through the mall, there I see, and I'm enticed by certain things. Primarily, though, the object of greatest temptation for me would be the cell phone. For it's where I sit when I am not satisfied and need to figure out how to waste my time that I just go through it over and over and over, saying, I don't know what's next with the next swipe of the thumb, but whatever it is, come on in. Man, this is not what it means to love God. This is what it means to love the world. Then finally, there's that boasting. This is really weird as it's communicated in the Scriptures. It's pretty hard to interpret, actually. Different translations have the pride of life, the boastful pride of life, the glamour of this life, the life of the empty show. But it's basically when you brag and boast and find your identity, look at me, you say, based upon people, position, or possessions. We're to consider others better than ourselves, to think more highly of our not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We're to have the humble mind of Christ and not to boast in anything except Christ alone. So you get in this? Jesus Christ has done all of this for you, this group of people here. There's this group of people over here who he's not done all that for. They're not getting any of those benefits. Now we once again are hearing the exhortation. You people, you don't get over there by loving enough. That's not how it works. You people who are just over here have this love that is different. That's why it's called a strange affection, a strange love. It's a different sort of an affection. And all of a sudden, those things over there, though they're calling your name, though they're real temptations, though John finds the need to write to us in his congregation about them, that doesn't characterize us. Why? Go back to what I said about the young men, young women. We're strong. Why are we strong? I skipped over that part. Because we have the Word of God, who is Jesus Christ, and His words, which are the Bible guiding us from within. We don't have to live being jerked around by the world, the flesh, and the devil, by the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the lust of the flesh. That's not us. John then wants to end by saying, these loves aren't equal. I mean, if you're going to live according to these loves... You're never going to be satisfied and you're always going to be trading them in for something else to love that will satisfy. And then one day, all of this goes away. The world is passing away in its desires. All that really satisfies, really, is here. And I know we only half-heartedly believe it. If I just had more money, if I just had a, a better boyfriend, if I just had a different place to live, if I just had a little more of that substance. It never satisfies, ever. It's only Jesus that satisfies. And then he satisfies forever. So these two loves, they're not equal, and they're not compatible. It is impossible for darkness to remain when light comes in the room. You really can't have perfume and a bad odor together because one will mess up the other. Either you will not smell the bad odor, that's called deodorant, or you will not smell the sweet fragrance because the odor will just overcome. It goes about as well together as kissing and betraying Jesus. I mean, yeah, you, I guess you can come up and outwardly kiss Jesus, but if you're betraying Him at the same time, your affections aren't, we know where your affections are. Love for the world and love for the Father cannot exist side by side. And so Vance Havner, a good old country preacher, he said this, and you have to kind of figure out how he talks. Some of you will appreciate this, some won't. But he's a little man who talked like this. Worldliness is rampant in the church. The devil is not fighting churches, he's joining them. He isn't persecuting Christianity. He's professing it. He says, many Christians are still in the wilderness, and they're just longing for garlic instead of grace, melons instead of manna. These loves are very telling. In the words of John, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's those who do the will of God abide forever. Matthew Henry says, worldlings make gold their God, but saints make God their gold. Your love shows your relationship. These things are not from the Father. That's not the love of the Father, from the Father, for the Father. There's no room for double occupancy in the Christian's heart. Your love For the world is not equal to the love of God. It's not compatible with the love of God. And your love is very telling. So now, how do we apply this? Five things. The fifth I want you to do during communion. Number one, understand God's law. Just don't don't water it down. When he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he meant with 100% of your totality, that's your outside and your inside, your flesh and your spirit, I want you to have affection for me. He meant it. When he showed up in uh, Egypt to save Israel, he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He meant it when he said in James... You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He meant it when he said, you have to hate father or mother in comparison to your love for me. (coughs) He meant it when he said, you cannot have love and you cannot serve both God and earthly things. He meant it. This is what it means to have love For God, And then he meant it when he said, If you love me, you will also love your neighbor as yourself. So the best way you can show love for me is to absolutely show love for your neighbor. That's the law. And we're not going to water it down. Not going to give a bonus point for extra credit in some way. We're not going to grade on a curve. We're not going to mellow out. The law when it comes to judging you, is not your friend in any way. There is no one righteous. No, not one, which leads us to number two. Let us acknowledge and confess our sins. You see, this is why it was easier to be a fundamentalist back in the day. It was easy to pick your six or seven sins that you weren't going to commit and say, well, I'm a good Christian because I don't do that while letting these crazy, selfish ambitions uh, and temperaments rage within. That's not where you're allowed to go. You're going to have to realize that even if on the outside you look reputable, and even if on the outside you get ordained to some office, that, that that may look really good on the outside, but the problem is the heart. And God is not outwardly impressed by you. He sees right through the veneer, He sees right through through the nakedness of soul. And he knows that even when we hold our tongue, we don't want to. When we we don't throw the finger up when we're driving and we get all proud because, uh, look at the patience that I have now. He knows exactly what you're thinking on the inside. He knows that when you're disciplining, you're not loving your child, but that you're punishing that thing because you don't want that boy or girl to ever embarrass you like that in public again. He knows that when, we, we, when I preach on this sin, I'm actually committing it over here or I'm thinking or at least maybe I'm even wanting to. He sees right through and all I can do at this point is recognize, man, it would be easier to keep some external law code than it would be to love my God. But that's not what he tells me to do. I'm to love him. With all my heart, soul, mind, and strength within leads to external actions, but I don't have the first part right. So, with me, I want you to understand God's law today. With me, I want you to acknowledge and confess your sins. And then, with me, I want us to follow that which we've already learned. If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful, He's just to forgive us all of our sins, including our lack of affection, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, including that remnant affection we still have for the world, which is incompatible with the love He has for me and the love I'm supposed to have. This is the gospel. We're not going to forget it on this day. So the table today is not for the person who loves perfectly. And the table today is not for the person who says, my lack of love is a small thing. The table today is only for you sitting here who say, there is a law. There is a love I'm supposed to have. I don't have it. But He loves me. He died on the cross for me. He broke His body for me. His blood was poured out. He did that for me. So therefore, any love that I do have for Him is only a response to His love for me. So we wash for the first time. If you don't know Christ, come to Him today. Call upon Him now. It really is that good. But then we rewash today. We come back up here and we present our sins to Him. This table is for saints who sin. Then let's remember the encouragement. He's not surprised by your lack of love. He's sitting there going, come to me, little child. He's sitting there going, I've already forgiven you. I am your father. I want what's best for you. He's sitting there going, and come on, old men. Come on, senior saints who are ladies. I won't call you old ladies. Come on. You know me. I've known you. I'm the one who's from the beginning loved you. And then he's looking at teenagers and he's saying, yeah, I know you. You've already won. You're victorious. You've already conquered. It's in the perfect tense. You are strong in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have the word of God in you. And then what does he do as he encourages us and as we come? You ready? This table becomes a means of grace. In Baptist churches, you come forward, you can bow down here, you can cry. Today, you come forward to the table, you take the elements, you go back to your chair, and before you eat or drink, you ask these three questions. Lord Jesus Christ, I know you love me so much and I want to love you more. How can I pursue greater love for you? I just I know that if I love you more, I will love that less because those two loves are incompatible. So instead of focusing on all the sin that I'm not supposed to love that I end up loving, how about this? How about be like uh, what I want for my children? They go through this stage where they think, man, if I could have a truck with a radio with big tires and a thirty-five thousand dollar career, I got I'm set for life. And you're sitting there going, Bud bigger dreams, a greater affection squelches out that, this desire to get in shape, that's kind of what I'm having to do, is I'm, I can't look at lasagna all day, I have to look at the little chart that I have, and I have to say, uh, vacation's coming, and I have to say, I'd like to kind of see if I can get in those pants, and I'm still trying to get in, Laura, I, I got to ask Laura to marry me in a pair of green plaid pants. And I still own those pants. I haven't gotten back in them yet. I'm gonna get in them. I mean, I, okay, the truth is I actually did get in them. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> the marshmallow stuff was just. <laughs> so I'm gonna get in those pants. What would make me wanna say no to the lasagna and yes to getting in shape? Focusing on this. This is, The power of a renewed affection is you don't grow in sanctification by saying, no, 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 no. You don't grow in sanctification by saying, God says that's bad, 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 bad. The way we grow in sanctification is by looking at God, looking at His beauty, and saying, I want Him. I want to enjoy that. He is far superior to this. And so ask yourself the question, how can I pursue greater love for Christ? That's why Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify the desires of the flesh. Then secondly, now that I am looking at Christ, I still hear these voices. Ask yourself the question, Lord, today, in the month of October, I mean, our Roman Catholic friends have their Lent. We're just gonna have our October fest of a Presbyterian sort. But instead of focusing on how much beer we can drink, maybe your Oktoberfest is this. Lord, if you'll show me what I need to focus on to help my affections grow, I would also like you to help me understand what can I kill? What can I mortify? What can I do away with because it's not going to contribute. It may even be allowable, but it's not edifying. So, Lord, how can I put this to death? And while you're sitting there with the bread and wine, ask the Lord, what can I do to grow in affection, and what can I do to kill? And maybe there you make a vow. For the month of October, this is not legalism. This is discipline, self-control. But for the month of October, I feel in my heart, that I would like to serve my Lord by saying no to fill in the blank. Thirdly, what commitments would I like to make? I kind of threw that together, sorry. Martin Luther, I end with four quotes, said, What sort of a God is it that not even moth or rust it can stand against? Aren't we tired of focusing on all this stuff that moth and rust will consume? Jim Elliott wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Solomon wrote, vanity, vanity. All this stuff is vanity. And the hymn writer wrote, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to come to the table. Remember the gospel. Be encouraged by his love for you. Take it back to your seats. Sit there, ask yourself, what could I do to grow? What could I do to kill? What commitments will I actually make with, in my own heart that no one else knows about for one month and enjoy responding by letting the things of this world grow strangely dim in comparison to his glory?